Okay, hi everybody. As you can tell, I am not the dean. I'm not as good looking. He's in, um, he's in Rwanda right now uh, because he is attending the consecration of Sam Mugisha as the new bishop over the Shira Diocese, which we're really pumped about. And uh, I'm glad Andrew's there, glad he's doing that. I'm beginning a short four-week series on the prayer book. It's kind of a condensed version of the nine-week class I taught last year uh, in the fall, but with some new zingers and curveballs. So if you're coming again, I promise this will be not only good review, but a few other uh, wonderful tidbits, because I don't want to necessarily just regurgitate the same thing. I, I want to go over the same themes, talk about those things, but I don't necessarily um, want to just re-say those same things. So thanks for letting me come. Thanks for letting me do this. Let us pray. Our Father, we're reminded in this season of Lent um, that we need to come before you humbly always, not just in Lent, but we're reminded in times like this of the need to approach you and hear from you and that human beings don't live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. And so I pray that as we begin and move through this class, we would learn what it's like to be sustained by your word and that you would open and unstop our ears to receive of that sustenance in your gospel in our worship services. And I pray that the fruit of this class would be that we're invigorated by the power of your spirit to love and serve you in our worship services and that it might spill over into a life of worship from Monday through Saturday until we come back again. Amen. All right, so uh, I'm Zach Hicks. Hopefully a lot of you know me by now. I've been here several months. I already feel like I've been here years, which is great. It's great. Um, and I love talking about the prayer book. I'm the canon for worship and liturgy, so I live uh, and move and think about the worship rhythms of Advent all the time. I'm neck deep in our orders of worship all the time. I'm swimming in liturgy all the time, and I'm processing how it's affecting us as disciples, as followers of Jesus, all the time. I'm processing how it connects to culture and how we actually hear this liturgy all the time. I'm reading books about it all the time. I'm thinking about it all the time, and I recognize I'm in a bubble, um, and that you all don't. But part of the reason that I feel my calling is I try to, I feel called to think these thoughts and to process these things. Uh, precisely so that you don't necessarily have to. But at times like these, I want to be able to open up for us the vision of what it means. And so um, the class is the heart of our worship, the power of the Book of Common Prayer. Today I'm going to talk about the Book of Common Prayer in general. And then um, we'll see what happens later. But we have two goals with this class. And it's the same goals as the previous one. Um, I want us to help better connect head and heart in our worship services. I want us to be able to not only feel uh, things up here and think things up here, sorry, but I want us to feel things down here and be able to sort of connect what it means not only to have thoughtful worship, which we do, but have it penetrate the heart. Um, Pastor Tim Keller once said, and I think that this is true, that true worship begins when knowledge in the head spills over into the heart and erupts in praise. And you've all had that moment, that moment when you've been thinking, meditating, or hearing a word 
when all of a sudden the goosebumps raise on your skin and your heart starts beating faster and the tears well up. That's the nature of holistic, true worship. And I want to be able for us to help better connect some of those things, recognizing that week in and week out, we go through rituals and we go through patterns. And it's not going to feel like that every week because we're human. But if I, as a pastor over you, want us to be able to grow, I want us to be able to grow in those, those disconnects, those disconnected moments being fewer and far between. So that in worship, when we're engaging our liturgy, it's spilling over constantly from head to heart. So that it's not mere ritual, but it becomes ritual filled with heart. And I actually think that that's at the heart of the original compiler and architect of the Book of Common Prayer, Thomas Cranmer. He wrote this in his initial preface to the first English prayer book. His purpose for worship is that people should continually profit more and more in the knowledge of God and be more, what? More inflamed with the love of his true religion. And that's old language for, I want us to worship in a way where people are set on fire. That's what I want our worship to be like, to feel like. That's what he set out to do when he was architecting the Book of Common Prayer that we use today. The second goal for our class is hopefully, as we point out over the next four weeks, things about our liturgy and things about the way we do our liturgy, that your ears become increasingly unstopped and that you start noticing and picking up the gospel more and more in our worship services that you hear the gospel more and more powerfully, more and more often. And why would I care about that? Precisely because, according to Paul, the gospel is the power of God. That's Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The power. It is the one thing that carries with it the nucleus of an atomic bomb's worth of spiritual power. The gospel, which is why we care so much about it at Advent why we're at lengths to talk about it constantly, why we won't depart from it in our pulpit, and why I'm hopeful that you are able to increasingly hear it in all its various ways that it's coming at you in our liturgy. This is what the next four weeks look like. Week one, introduction. Week two, next week we'll be talking about morning prayer. Week three, we'll be talking about Holy Communion. And week four, we'll be rounding out that Holy Communion discussion. And I hope generally that I'm sharing for about 30 minutes and then we're asking lots of questions, all right? Uh, I hope that that's, that's the case. I hope. So today I want to go over the history, the theology, and the heart of the prayer book in one fell swoop, in one uh, kind of shot. These dates, don't memorize them. Don't even think about them again. But I want to blitz you with a general sense of the movement and the evolution of uh, the prayer book. Because these dates are significant for the prayer book, the, the prayer book that you and I have, the Book of Common Prayer that's in our pews, is not the same prayer book that was uh, first given to the English-speaking world uh, in 1549. There's been changes and emendations, um, and I want to quickly kind of talk through the evolution of that. In 1549, this was the point in human history, human history, when English speakers for the first time, worshipped corporately in their mother tongue. Before 1549, English speakers across the world, which were mostly in England, <laughs> but across the world, did not worship in their native tongue. 
They worshipped in Latin. And only the upper classes understood it, but even then they couldn't hear it because a lot of the liturgy was done by the priest facing away from them and muttered to themselves. Okay? That's what the experience of worship was like before the Book of Common Prayer hit in 1549. So can you imagine, if you've been doing worship that way for hundreds of years, how radical and powerful a change it would be to hear the words of worship spoken in your tongue for the first time? It's why in the original rubrics of the 1549 handbook, you see a prayer book, you see time and again Thomas Kramer saying, and the priest or minister says, in a loud voice. <laughs> the priest says in a loud voice, facing the people. Why? Because he wants this thing heard and understood and participated in, right? So all of a sudden, for the first time, English speakers have worship in their mother tongue. So that means, if you read Canon Schneider's uh, Word in the Adventurer this week, it is in our DNA as Anglicans that contextualization or making worship understandable and apprehendable to the current culture is is part and parcel to what it means to worship in the Anglican tradition. Think about that and dwell on that. In 1552, the second English prayer book came out. And in short, Cranmer, in my opinion, and the opinion of other scholars I trust, uh, rolled out the 1549 prayer book as a temporary measure to get to the 1552 prayer book. The 1552 prayer book was much more Protestant much more reformational in its theology and the way it came out, okay? So that, that book came out. There were, there were lots of emendations between 1549 and 1552. A whole century of English history goes by, kings and queens and a religious development in this new Protestant land. Um, and as a result, for a time, in the mid-1600s, the prayer book became illegal, for a span of a few years. And so it was reinstated in 1662 after experience, uh, experiencing being contraband for a while, right? And so 1662 is a seminal year uh, when it was reestablished. Um, and it was mostly a reinstatement of the 1552 prayer book. The 1662 prayer book remained for many, many years. And when we skip to 1789, Look at that year and just think about our own nation. 1776, right? It's when things kind of sort of started up officially for the United States of America. Shortly after that moment, when the Anglican Church, the Church of England, was being established as an American branch of the Protestant uh, Church of England, this American branch founded itself as the Episcopal Church and therefore ratified the first American prayer book there were some significant changes that happened in this first American prayer book that moved away from the structure and theology of the 1662 liturgy, that moved it in a direction that I would describe as more pre-reformational, more medieval, more Roman in a way. And so even at the very beginning of our prayer book tradition, we've got some things that aren't quite necessarily as overtly Protestant. And again, I don't mean to pit wars. I only mean to point this out because of the clarity and importance and power of the gospel and how it gets muted in changes like this. Right? 
If you want to spend hours with me, I'll comb through all the history with you. Uh, in 1928, the first major American prayer book revision occurred. Um, when that revision occurred, many things had been going on for decades in the Church of England and in the Episcopal Church in the United States and just American culture in general. And all those things brought theologians to think new thoughts and liturgists to think new thoughts. And those new thoughts found their way into the prayer book. Some of us are old enough in this room to have grown up with the 1928 prayer book. So for some of us, that's our, that's our kind of uh, ancestral worship heart language, right? Um, the 1928 prayer book is much more connected to the 1662 prayer book, as, as is the 1789. They're both more connected to the 1662 than the 1979 prayer book, which was the second major prayer book uh, revision. And... Sources tell us that we're up for another one. Um, but most of us nowadays, if we're new to the Episcopal Church, will know the 1979 Book of Common Prayer. That's what we're used to by now. When it hit the scene, it created all kinds of issues. And those of you, again, who are old enough to remember those issues, and maybe talking to your parents who were disgruntled about it, or parents who were for it. Uh, but this is, the, this is the history. Each emendation came with a sense of sort of theological emphases that were important to the people at the time. And what I would generally say is my analysis of it is that as these folks emphasized what they emphasized theologically, the gospel got a little more obscured in the liturgy. It is why we at Advent, which I'll try to explain when we get to Holy Communion, have moved our liturgy back a little bit in time to some earlier liturgies. It's not because we like being old and saying beseech all the time. It's not because we like using old language, but it's precisely because we value the gospel and its clarity in being heard. All right? Just want to expose a little tension in the, in the Anglican tradition without um, talking about it for too long, because it plays into these emendations in the prayer book. In the 1500s, the 16th century, was the founding of the Church of England as a Protestant church, right? It was a Protestant vision. There were two significant major moments in the history of the Church of England that have affected us and our prayer books. And these have been both moments of what I would call retrieval. People becoming um, enamored with and passionate about retrieving pre-reformational liturgy and theology. Right? That first movement was called Laudianism after Archbishop Laud in the mid-1600s. Archbishop Laud, as well as a lot of other followers, felt like we needed to recover some Roman things that we had done before and bring them into worship. And there was enough of a constituency such that they, they became a strong lobbying party and it affected the ethos of the Church of England, right? Then in the mid-late 1800s, mid to late 1800s, another significant, what do you call, Roman Catholic revival in, in the... Uh, Church of England, and in the Episcopal Church. It's called the Oxford and Tractarian Movement. The short answer to why people, if you're just from any background, and you come into an Episcopal Church today, uh, and the, if they have sort of any religious moorings, oftentimes the comment is this, positive or negative, it, this feels so Catholic, right? The short answer as to why that is the case is the Oxford and Tractarian Movement. Churches looked and felt very different before the late 1800s, okay? 
A great case in point is our own parish's architecture. Okay? Does anybody know when our church was physically built? Yes, Brian. Uh, when it was built over a number of years. Right? 1890s. Okay. Where does that put us in the history of all this? Smack dab in the center of power and influence of the Oxford and Tractarian movement, which is why architecturally our church has a very Roman structure to it. Table feels less like a table, more like an altar. Pulpit is off to the side, and it's a little elevated, but at least for the Protestants, they wanted it higher, <laughs> right? Um, there's, there's degrees of separation and access, right? And so all these things kind of show even what our air. You can walk into a church and know, and, and if you've got your radar tuned, you can know what theology drove the building of that church, okay? Um, and so that's our church. It was built in 1873, and then a fire happened, and it was rebuilt in 1883 to 1885-ish, right? And probably continued to be built up into the 90s. Uh, and so that's worthy of reflection to know what point in history our church was founded and built in Birmingham, okay? I'm just going to let that dangle there, okay? All right, the theology of the prayer book. The central question that was being asked in the Reformation to whittle it down was this question, how are people changed? That was the question. They were looking at the church that was existing, and it had a theology of how people change. And the Reformation, many of the, many of the, the Catholic ministers and scholars reading the Bible in that era started reading the Bible and looking at the way that the structure of the church viewed change in people and said there's something incongruous about this. How are people changed? They were discovering upon reading the New Testament and Paul, but upon seeing the whole counsel of God throughout all Scripture, that people are changed by a work of God in the heart. People are changed by a work of God in the heart, which is very different from people being changed by conforming to a set of practices and rituals, by conforming to um, certain standards. And if you... If you conform to those standards, you're sort of in and you've changed. Because look, your behavior is different. Many of the reformers viewed that as a very platonic thing to say. But if you know anything about Plato and his concept of virtue, if you know anything about Plato and his ethics, this is a very platonic thing to say that the rituals, the outside, the exterior, are what eventually change you. And the Reformation said, as I read the Bible, that gets flipped on its head. Change doesn't happen from the outside in, but from the inside out. And particularly, how does God do this work of from the inside out? Again, reading the scriptures, they said through his word, particularly in the gospel. The gospel is what has the power to change us. And so we might describe the Reformation as a huge recovery of the centrality and importance of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to do what sinners could never do for themselves. The very word that was preached today by Mark, the gospel. The driving force behind the Reformation, and therefore the driving force behind a Reformation understanding of worship can be summarized in this statement. 
the word of God births faith. That's an answer to the question of how people are changed. People are changed by faith and trust in God. And as faith and trust in God happens, God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, transforms people and produces the fruit of that spirit in our lives. That's how change works. And only by the word of God, particularly in the gospel, does that happen. So a shorthand to articulate this is that the word of God births faith. Or with a handy-dandy um, illustration that I only realize in hindsight looks like the you know, carry-on thing, uh, right? It's like uh, keep calm and carry on. I didn't do that on purpose, but it is English, and we're talking about English stuff. So uh, if there's a chasm between God and us, and here's the way it works. God gives us his word, and out of giving us that word, the Spirit filling it produces faith back to Him and trust in Him. The Word of God produces faith. Hebrews 4, 12-13 says, For the Word of God is living and active. Alright? Do we take those words seriously? It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. The Reformers loved this passage because it, it, it was the kind of hallmark of what, it, what the Word of God is. Living, active, it gets to the heart of things. It searches. It does. And look at this language in particular that I blewed out. Thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden. Does that language sound familiar to you at all? Does that language sound like something we pray every week in worship? The collect for purity. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Christ our Lord. This is the prayer that opens up the central liturgy of the Book of Common Prayer. In a sense, it sets the theological tone for all of worship in the Reformation understanding. And it's saying that the Word of God does these things, you know? The Word of God opens hearts. It exposes secrets. It finds the hidden thoughts. The Word of God is living and active. It divides you, opens you up, and then sews you back together, right? Romans 10, 17, another really important passage to sort of describe in a shorthanded way. The Reformation vision for worship. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This means, how are people changed? They're changed by hearing, because faith comes by hearing. And what are they hearing in particular? The word of Christ. The word about Christ. Christ crucified. That's why Paul said, I desire and seek to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Why? Why did he say that? Because he believed with all his heart that that's what has the power to change. All right? So our whole liturgy is filled with this principle driving it again and again and again. The Word of God births faith in us. Now, a fun little exercise that we're going to do just to sort of make it a little bit interesting is to ask questions of our own liturgy in how this paradigm of the Word of God birthing faith shows up again and again and again. For instance, 
in both our communion liturgy and in morning prayer, we have this scripture cycle, right? A passage, a, a reading, then a psalm, and then another reading, and then a hymn. We do this cycle every week in both. What happens in our liturgy after the scripture cycle, after the word of God comes to us? What happens next? What do we do? What? What happens next? Creed. Creed. And what is creed? It's a statement of faith. I believe. So the scriptures are read. The word of God births faith in us. The creed is our response, right? So when the scriptures are read, I res- and why do we stand? Because it's, it's, it's as though the word of God has resurrected us. We've been listening, dry bones, dead in our trespasses and sins. And then we rise because the word of God has done it. And we say, I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. Nice. All right. What about the sermon? What do we do after the sermon? What happens? Offertory. Wait, what'd you say? What'd you say? What'd you... What? Yeah, we collect money, right? We pay for, we pay for that sermon. All right. Uh, the offertory, the word of God births faith. I was just thinking about this as I saw the plates go up to the table. You know, it's, even in morning prayer, it's like that moment in our communion liturgy when after hearing the word of God, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, right? That's why those plates go all the way up. That's why they're lifted up because like, God, take us all, take all of us. And what is it in response? The word of God alone produces that kind of faithful response, all right? What about the declaration of forgiveness in morning prayer? Does anybody know what happens after the word about Christ that your sins are paid for and forgiven? What happens after that? Anybody know? What? Say again? Pardon. Well, that's that word. What happens after the word of pardon? Open thou our lips, And our mouths shall show forth thy praise. And all of a sudden we're standing and singing. Why? Because we've been resurrected. And the word of God declaring forgiveness births faithful praise and glory unto him. Right? Right? All right. So declaration of forgiveness and the comfortable words in Holy Communion. Kind of that same moment in the service. What happens after that? What does the minister say after those four comfortable words? Peace. And all of a sudden, we get actually a new dimension of what this faith looks like. Because it looks like faith to God working itself out in love to neighbor. Which is why we undergo that awkward and hard ritual of peace, 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 peace. Why do we do that? Because the word of God reconciling us to God reconciles us to one another. And all of a sudden, we have the power to peace, 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 peace. If we only knew that what was intended in the liturgy was that we would embody and display the reconciliation that occurs when the word of God comes down and declares us forgiven, all of a sudden I'm free to lay down my swords and love my neighbor. It's justification and it's vocation together, right? What about the Lord's Prayer and the suffrages? We may not think so. We've got the string of prayers in morning prayer. The Lord's Prayer and the suffrages... We may not recognize it, but those are all direct quotations of Scripture. Not a lick of it was composed, you know, by merely human hands. 
the word of God. What's this, what happens after the suffrages? What do we start praying in response next after the suffrages? Does anybody know? The collects, the intercessions, and thanksgiving. All of a sudden, we're praying more human prayers. We're praying for our neighbors, right? The word of God births faith in us to be able to ask for those things necessary, all right? Communion, we receive communion. Then what happens? What do we pray after communion? What do we pray? We pray one of these two prayers. Father of all mercies, we give the humble and hearty thanks. So we thank God, right? Or the prayer that we prayed during Lent and Advent. And here we present ourselves, our souls, our bodies. Take it all. I offer myself to you as a living sacrifice. That's what we pray. Why? Because the word of God is what births faith in us. So the heart of the Book of Common Prayer, the heart of our worship, the structure of our worship, what it actually says in it, the goal of it is to unleash the word of God, the scriptures, particularly Jesus Christ himself. To convert your heart and my heart that still needs conversion every day through the power of the gospel. All right? So that's what we're going to try to detect and discern and pull out of morning prayer and holy communion for the glory of God and the blessing of others. All right, that was exactly 30 minutes. I'm feeling super Episcopalian and awesome right now. Um, I'd love to uh, answer any questions that you all have. Um, this is uh, a little bit off topic, uh, but since you brought up the Apostles' Creed, I think it's fair game. Okay. Um, the, after he was crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell. Where is that scripturally, and where does that come from? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's been the most argued about and ink-spilled-over phrase in the Apostles' Creed in history. Um, I don't think I'm going to be able to answer that now, except to say that a way to think about it, um, so I'm not going to answer where it's found in Scripture. I think it's probably a stitched together theology of what happens and happened to Jesus there. But the way it sort of was spoken to me uh, was someone asked me once, what is hell? And being a good kid who grew up in the evangelical church, it's separation from God. Hell is ultimately sort of the absence of God's grace and mercy and presence, so separation from God. What did Jesus experience on the cross? Separation from God. He said, my God, quoting from Psalm 20, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt separation from his Father. Somehow, Jesus experienced the wrath and condemnation and threat and fires of hell for you and for me upon that cross. Spatially, I don't know how to describe it, but that's sort of my best, best shot at, at maybe talking about it. It's a great question, though. I had that same question when you did the other uh, thing, and, and I, I got the verse wrong at the time, but I, I went and looked. And the only thing that I could find that really seemed to speak directly to it was I think it was Psalm 10 verse 16 or Psalm 16 verse 10 one or the other anyway said, thou didst not leave his hole in hell thou didst not allow thy holy one to see corruption mm. now yeah. that sort of implies 
the word hell, but yeah, uh, it's hard because the Hebrew for these words hell, sheol, yeah. and things like that have a a rich meaning. And there's another passage in Peter that talks. It's a very obscure and debated in scholarship that talks about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison, and that's a really hard one to understand. I think until you understand intertestamental literature, but it's kind of going beyond the scope of what we're talking about. So, yeah. Zach, um, would you speak a little bit more about the peace and why that was brought into the service? Because that was so controversial right. at the time. And what was the thinking behind yeah. sort of breaking the service? Right. The peace, um, the peace was in addition of the 1979 prayer book revisers. And I bless them for it. Because part of uh, what they were after with that was they looked at the liturgy and I think made the right critique and evaluation. And the evaluation was this. It's all vertical. Us and God. And there's no sense of the horizontal. And yet when I read the scriptures, where a church is a community of folks, first off, and second off, I read passages of scripture that talk about singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's a horizontal dimension to worship. It's not all vertical. And what they were saying is, how can we lovingly but powerfully enact the horizontal nature of, of worship together? We do this one of the ways by passing the peace of Christ to one another. It's, just, it's, it's a ritual, and it certainly made, made people who were used to purely vertical worship, you know, blow a gasket, right? Understandably, because it's never been done before. I'm not supposed to talk to or touch anyone else. <laughs> and the, I think the Bible says otherwise. And so I'm really grateful that the revisers of the 79 prayer book put that in there because it's not only peace with God, but the gospel brings us peace with neighbor. And think about the sort of cultural things that were going on uh, moving up to 1979. Societal unrest. You know, Think about Birmingham in the era of the 60s and 70s. Holy cow, we needed the peace. We need the peace. Yeah. You somewhat answered this question just now, but when you're going through the different prayer books and, and we had the revision and... 1700 and something, and then one another revision for 150 years to 1920 something. Yep. Then we get another one in 50 years, and you and you say we're about to have another. Is that just a function of society now, or is that a, is there some religious significance to that, or why we're getting more revisions more quickly? Right, that's a great question. As I read and have read the scholars in the kind of late 1800s, early 1900s, and the people who were part of this revision. Around these times started coming a principle based on a missionary impulse that, in line with the Anglican tradition, worship always needs to be contextualized. And so the, the, a driving principle behind prayer book revision, one of the many, was that because culture is always changing, worship needs to be reimagined for this existing culture. It's like thinking like a missionary. If I'm going to a foreign country and I'm trying to preach the gospel in a way that's understood by the people, I need to think about that culture a lot and then probably say a few things differently. And of course, the wrestle job is to ask, how do we preach the timeless gospel to a time-bound people and culture? And inevitably, in that, time, in that tension, things get lost or muddled and have to be recovered again. Uh, so I'd say it's because, it's because of missionary impulse of wanting to recontextualize, but also around this time, as people started talking about contextualizing worship, mantras started coming up and saying things like this, the prayer book always needs to be revised 
to, to keep it static is actually contrary to being proper missionaries of the gospel. And so into the kind of Anglican culture of liturgical thought came uh, what has become now a mainstay in our seminaries and in, our, um, in, in just the way people talk about the prayer book. It's always in need of revision. And so I think it's, it's just going to come faster and faster. It's a great question. It's my best guess as to why it's happening with increasing rapidity. Hi, Zach. Um, hi. Hi. Um, between, if I understood correctly, between uh, 1552 and 1662, yeah. at one point the prayer book was no longer in use. Yes. And specifically, what year did that occur and why? It was in the, in the mid-1640s. 16, or in the 1640s. It occurred because there was mounting um, disagreement among ministers and theologians in the Church of England. One side being the Puritans that had really risen post the 16th century. And the Puritans felt like all these things, the liturgy itself and all the rituals associated with it, were antithetical to true worship from the heart because they'd just seen the abuses of it and they felt dissatisfied. They felt like the Reformation should have gone further. More prayers from pastors should be extemporaneous. You know, preaching shouldn't necessarily be tied to a lectionary, but should be from how the Spirit's moving in your local church. And the Puritans in the 1640s really rose to power and prominence and got Parliament to make the prayer book illegal. Right? And if you study your English history around this time, um, you see the way it was playing into national politics and uh, what was going on with the, the king and, and things like that. And it was, it was a time when there was no king, right? Um, so all these things were happening. It's when the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the uh, uh, doctrinal confession of the Presbyterian Church, who are the heirs of the Puritan uh, vein of the Church of England, you know, that's where that got produced at Westminster at that time. And so it got banned um, because the Puritans were in power. And the Puritans had a, had a different scheme of worship just to erase all the ritual because they felt like it was dead. I think it's a valid critique whether or not I come to that conclusion about the solution. The fact that ritualistic worship is always in danger of becoming mere ritual is why we're having this class, right? <laughs> right? So I sympathize with uh, the heart of those who are concerned about there not being a heart to the way that we do things. That's why we're doing this, and probably why I will teach this until I die, right? Um, Zach, I've uh, listened to all the revisions that are coming, and there's another one coming, and the thing I sort of regret about that is, as a little girl, I thought I memorized the 1928 prayer book right. and I could say difficult words like propitiation and advocate and <laughs> not know what in the world that meant but I love the rhythm yes. and so as an adult I could in times of stress draw just draw whole passages up because oh, totally. without even trying you know saying it every week and I've never been able to do that with mm -hmm. 1979 I love it because we've kept the language and we don't do right too but um it's still, it's something right. about that rhythm uh, of every yes. week that I'm, I wish my children in times of stress could just pull those right. passages up. You're pointing out one of the liabilities of prayer book revision, which is that it, it causes us to kind of stutter step in our ability to encounter God 
and experience the presence of God in the liturgy freely, right? Because it's always changing, so what we thought was there. Uh, I didn't bring this up, but it's estimated that about two-thirds of the Book of Common Prayer's liturgy are direct quotations of or allusions to Scripture. And I think one of the things that you're saying is that the Word of God was in me, and I found it, the Holy Spirit using it and coming to me when I needed it, right? And that's powerful. That's powerful, and I praise God for that. And I praise God that a lot of that is still present, right? But it does make it feel like you're tripping a little bit when you're used to one thing and have to go to another. Yeah. What is the purpose of the peace? Except for every other Sunday morning, I just don't greet people that way. Um, listen to this recording about like, well, I, I, I described it as um, it's to display that because of our reconciliation with God, we can be reconciled with one another. It's to recognize that worship's not only horizontal, vertical, but horizontal. Yeah, that's what I was getting at earlier when I was talking. Yeah. Anything else? One more question. We've got time for one more. It's been very this side of the room heavy. I'll ask one then. Yeah. What should be our concerns with so much of the hierarchy of the Episcopal Church not really looking to Scripture anymore, thinking maybe 10% of it is really true and the rest of it we can just sort of disregard? With the revision of the prayer book, is that a concern? I think it is a concern. Yeah. I'm all for, I myself, am, and, and Advent is all for prayer book revision. Uh, we're for prayer book revision of a different kind. Um, and I'm concerned as well, you know, which is why we're processing these things now. Great question. All right, friends. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>